This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Christine Wong and this is Raise Your Game. On the line with me today is Neil Sahoda, an IBM Master Inventor, United Nations AI Advisor, Chief Innovation Officer at the University of California at Irvine, and globally recognized speaker and author. As a founding member of the UN's AI for Good initiative, he's passionate about redefining AI strategies. And through his work with global Fortune 500 companies as a change maker, he's also created a disruptive thinking framework called Tuckbo. We'll be covering all this and more today. I'm probably the guy that seeks the path of most resistance. <laughs> so I, I find that's the best way to learn. But that's also the best way to actually disrupt. And that's really been the motif of my entire career. I've had the amazing opportunity to work with a lot of companies, small startups to big global Fortune 500. And uh, we actually built a, you know, people always say like, you, you find those innovative, creative solutions. And they're like, that, that's amazing. How do you ever do that? And that's when I realized that it's not really a secret. Just you have to know how to think differently. And that's probably what I've been the best at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what's interesting about that is think differently. It sounds so simple. And yet, as you mentioned, so many people have trouble with it. I mean, why do you think that thinking outside of the box is so challenging for most people? I think the truth, Christine, is that most people don't see the box. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. When you're in the middle of it, you kind of it's kind of hard to see what the boundaries are and what that really means. And we get used to things, right? We learn things and they work and they've been done for so long. And you know, we don't as human beings really think about fixing stuff that's not really broken. Mm. And that's the that's the real issue. It's not that something is necessarily broken, it's there might be a better way of doing things. Right, right. I think that's really interesting. And it's true, you know, I think we look for, we only look for solutions when there are active problems in front of us, right? But just because something is working does not necessarily mean that that is, I guess, the most effective way or most intelligent way of doing things, right? I mean, you could drive a car that barely works, you know, but you could also make sure that you check the engine or maybe figure out a different kind of petrol to use or something. I don't know. I'm not a, I don't know why I went with a car analogy when I don't really drive. But point being, right, there's different ways and means. So if you don't even know that the box exists, how do you figure that out? How do you know what box to think in that you're thinking in right now? Uh, sometimes you have to ask the crazy question, right? Like, why do we do it this way? That's something we, we're not used to actually doing. You know, actually riffing off your car example for a moment, the, the first self-driving cars really relied on camera data because, you know, as humans, we drive with our, our eyes, our mm-hmm. vision. And that worked really well until there was a guy, he had the autopilot on in his Tesla. And even though he's behind the wheel, he was busy watching a Harry Potter movie. So you can see this truck wiped out on the highway and the truck beds blocking the road. The problem was neither did the car and right. right through it, ripped the top of the car off. And I was like, you can see it's 300 meters away. What happened? Right. Well, the truck bed was like a grayish white. It was a cloudy day. So from the camera's perspective, it just blended into the background. And you know, we're going like, man, you know, if this thing was just using radar, this never would have happened. Wait, why aren't we using radar? Mm. We can't drive with radar, but 
a machine can. And they're like, wait, but it can also use LIDAR, mm-hmm. use auditory sensors, IoT, all these things. It's like, huh, why didn't we think of this in the first place? Right, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> that is that is really interesting, and I think it's it's funny because um, that's something that seems like it would have been obvious at first glance. You know, obviously a car is not going to think, quote unquote, in the same way that a human does. So that's a really fantastic example of that. Now, uh, before we get to some of your uh, work with artificial intelligence, which I'm actually very personally interested in, I do want to talk about Tuckbo. Uh, So Tuckbo is this uh, disruptive uh, trademarked framework uh, for disruptive thinking, essentially, that you've come up with. Um, So tell me a little bit about that. What is it even short for, for example, first? It actually is short for the five phases. So it's think different, understand different, create different, be different, own different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having a lot of people always say, like, how do you think of these things and how do you do that? And I realized, well, I kind of follow a a process to actually figure out how to, to, that's how I actually think differently. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of codified that based on all the work that I've done over the years and I've been able to teach it to other people or organizations. So I've actually seen them been able to use this to either disrupt their business, come up with a new product or market, or even disrupt their career and find a new career path. Right. So it just was pen to paper, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I guess we've kind of already started talking about thinking different, right? Thinking about, you know, if you don't know what box you're thinking in, best probably to try to find that out by asking the crazy question. Uh, you know, so for example, let's say in running a business, how would that apply? Well, if we're if you're doing really well, you should probably ask yourself what would derail that. Mm. Right. And we always will start thinking about, well, maybe a competitor. Somebody tries to undercut the pricing. Okay. But think about what you're doing today and what the industry was doing 20 years ago. And that's what people are like, okay, that was really different. Right. And that's the thing is you have to think about, start thinking in that, that mode, pick an assumption, for example, we all make assumptions, but they're not truths. They're just actually risks. If that assumption breaks, then what happens? Right. A great example is actually the guy that started Zipcar. When he uh, he was very young when he started Zipcar, if I remember correctly, he just started thinking one day is like, well, the car is the most important or most expensive thing I own. I don't really spend that much time in it. And he actually researched it and realized like the average, at least American, spent about an hour a day in their car. And so he's like, why do we buy cars then? And he realized that's just the assumption. We need cars to get around. So he challenged that assumption and said, what if you didn't need a car to get around? We'd get a car on demand. Mm. So Zipcar started. Right. I think for our uh, local listeners, Zipcar is very similar to another company called uh, SoCar here in the sense of uh, you rent a car when you need to have a car on demand, like you said, uh, just for context purposes. But that, yeah, so exactly. It's about, you know, I guess uh, anticipating what might come next or what might throw you off your track, I suppose, right? Once you have your idea... You actually have to validate it and see, does it actually have value? Mm. That's the big thing. So that means understand the customer, the unmet needs. How would this actually create more value that already exists? And once you've done that validation, then you can start going into the create mm-hmm. different, which is where you actually, okay, now how do I actually design and build something. Mm. Going back and a then, little bit, sorry to interrupt you, but going back a little bit to the understand part. So I think one of the 
elements of this as well is not to, like you mentioned earlier, not to assume that you know what your customer wants as well. I think that's a trap, right, that a lot of businesses fall into where they're like, okay, well, um, product X worked like this, so we'll just release it uh, again, but in like a new color or in a new, uh, we'll upgrade like one thing about it. And then people probably, that'll be great. But like, that's a lot of the work has to go into, you know, like market research, right? And uh, like actually uh, maybe sending out surveys, getting customer feedback on like what is actually working for them, what's not working for them, right? Like you can't just like know what your customers need better than they know. Yeah. And Christine, that's the biggest challenge because sometimes we think like, well, this is, I would use this product, mm. right? So you start building something that you want. There was actually a, a group of engineers in the States that, we came up with this idea of a new STEM toy. And the, the tagline was Inventing Inventors. They had this little freeform kit and, you know, they made the instruction manual, mm. a comic books, so you know, all these cool things. And they said, like, well, the value proposition is, you know, your your kid was going to get a great job one day. And it was designed for like seven to nine-year-olds. Well, that's that's fantastic. But they couldn't get anyone to buy it, right? And so they're wondering what's going on and – you know, I, I was assigned to them through a, actually a, what's called the National Science Foundation's iCorps program. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing they had to do was interview 100 customers. So they talked to a couple of parents and the parents like, look, I don't really care if the toy is educational or not. Right. If I'm going to spend 50 bucks for this, I, I want my kid to play with it frequently and mm. often. Right. And they're like, oh, wow, that parent doesn't love their kid. And they <laughs> talked to a second parent and heard something similar and then a third one. Mm. By the time they got to the, the 30th set of parents, they're like, okay, we probably don't really understand this. And I thought one mom put it really great, which is like, look, I just want a toy that would keep my son occupied long enough for me to do the laundry. Mm. They didn't care about the education. They didn't care about the buying experience, not being their bad parents. But that's not the need they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the these entrepreneurs are going like, how, how can we really have missed this, right? I'm like, well, none of you are actually parents. Right. So you don't actually know the needs of a parent that has a seven to nine-year-old child. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's the same thing of like, uh, sometimes uh, non-parents are like, oh, like, why do they just like, why do parents let their kids just uh, watch iPads all day when they're out and about? Well, maybe have you ever considered that the parents just like, I just need a moment to have my lunch <laughs> without yeah. anyone asking me for help. <laughs> and, you know, and on the one hand, like, yeah, from a totally, I guess, practical perspective, like screen time can be bad and whatever, whatever, whatever. But on the very real lived experience, it's like, look, I just need... <laughs> this moment of peace. <laughs> so yeah, it's absolutely about, you know, and I think that that goes into again, that um, emphasis on thinking outside the box and trying to be like, okay, I know I would think this way. I would understand it in this way. Uh, you know, for me, this product would work in this way. And it's not about you, right? It's not about you at all. It's about what your customers might want or your clients might want, right? Uh, and actually, God forbid, asking them <laughs> exactly what they need from you, right? <laughs> hundred percent. That's that's I think the biggest challenge we all actually have is that we we feel like we understand because we interact or mm -hmm. we, we live in it. And the truth is, is we don't necessarily understand the mechanics of the work, and we're not really good representatives of the actual customer. 
Absolutely. Always talk to the customer. Mm-hmm. And then moving on from there, then you move into the creating uh, aspects well, creating differently. And that's interesting to me because what does that mean in terms of like, is it just, you know, looking at a different production process or is it, you know, what actually is that functionally like? That's really the implementation of your, your great idea. Mm-hmm. So how do we design and build it? So may not necessarily require a lot of, I'll say it, overhaul like in sustainable manufacturing or anything mm-hmm. like that, although that's always good for the planet. Um, but most people think that's the hardest part, and that's actually the easiest part. Mm. Like, Because once you already have that, you know, you've done all the, uh, I guess, mental legwork, right, already. You've done, you know, the whole thing of like, okay, I need to address a need, and now I've asked the people that I think may need this need, if they actually need the need or not. And then really that point is just putting it into action at that, at that stage. It is. But that's also when people think that's – they think it's the hardest part. They think it's the last part of what they have to do. And mm. then that's where they, a lot of people want to drop in the ball. Interesting. Because once you've actually built you know, your great product, you know, hopefully your disruptive idea is now reality. Is not just here it is and the masses will come and buy it. right? Mm. You actually have to go out and that's the different. That's the B. Fantastic. You actually have to go out and establish the, the value – engage the market, engage the customers, drive that adoption so people understand and recognize and feel the value that's actually being given to them. Amazing. We're going to take a short break for some messages, but after that, we'll get to the B in Takpo of Be Different. I'm speaking to Neil Sahoda here on Raise Your Game. You're listening to BFM 89.9. Beating fickle mindsets. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Listening to Raise Your Game, I'm Christine Wong and I'm speaking to Neil Sahoda. So he is an IBM Master Inventor, United Nations AI Advisor, Chief Innovation Officer at the University of California at Irvine and globally recognized speaker and author. And today we're talking about his disruptive thinking framework called Tuckbo primarily. Um, and so Tuckbo stands for Think Different, Understand Different, Create Different, Be Different and own different. Um, And so we've covered think, understand, and create different uh, before the break. Now we're moving on to be different. And as we mentioned before the break as well, a lot of people, businesses tend to think that create is where the process ends. You've done the thinking, you've done the market research, you've done the customer surveys, you've gone through the manufacturing process, you have this product that you're like, great, this is going to go super well. So what now? (laughs) Yeah, the problem is, is not how do you get people aware of what you've done and actually buy into the value. Because mm-hmm. we have done something like disruptive or even innovative. It's change and most people don't like change. Again, we're fixing something that's not really broken most of the time. Mm. So you really have to find a way to engage your customers to actually do that. Otherwise, they'll never recognize, let alone take the value created for them. Mm. And I would argue that, you know, especially as uh, technology has uh, improved and communication has globalized as well, that one of the best ways to do that is to educate people by putting your name out there, putting the story out there, right? Like using social media, using, you know, the typical, I guess, like marketing tools at your disposal to really push your product and what what, what need it's designed to fulfill out there, right? 
It, it is, but it's also finding the the, the right <coughs> initial target market mm. in the right channel in the right channel with the right message. Mm-hmm. So you know, I actually was helping out a company that is very focused on using AI with neuro linguistics mm-hmm. and uh, psychographic profiling to help uh, depressed and suicidal teenagers. There's just not enough therapists or psychologists in the world as even before the pandemic to help them. And so mm-hmm. they wanted to try and give more tools to the ter- therapists so they could see more patients. And the science is real. The science has been around for a long time. You know, they, they spent all this time working on it. They did some testing and they thought, okay, we have something trusted. Went out, you know, told the community, offered it up. And no one seemed to care, mm. right? There's this whole reaction of, oh man, this either that it can't, this can't be any better than what I already do, or I'm not taking the time to learn this, or you know, it's too much change too quickly. And that's when they realized they had to take a different approach, right, to establish the, the value and the credibility of what the, of their you know AI kind of assisted therapist. They actually had to go out and own that difference. They actually had to go out and, you know, not just press the flesh and talk some therapists into doing it, but actually quantify and show the value and even offer up and say like, look, if you'll just try it out or this, I'll give you a safe space to actually do this. So they had to invest a lot of time to actually build up that market as a result. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, again, that last little bit of talk about which is own different, right? So own different. I mean, you kind of have acknowledged that it's sort of going beyond, uh, I guess, what is typically expected of, you know, getting involved with the communities that you're trying to reach and trying to really um, get down to, I guess, like ground level. And I think also to an extent, maybe being comfortable with the fact that like this is going to be a cycle, right? It's not just a, a line. I think that's the other thing. It's... um. In this whole process of, you know, you want to put out a product out there, you want to start a business or whatever, it's like, okay, like, you know, most people are like, okay, I started the business and then it's going and that's going to make money and it's going to be great. But you're going to have to keep repeating this whole cycle. This is going to be a never-ending thing where it's like you always have to be on the lookout because once you start to think that it's in line, that's where you get complacent, right? That's the whole point of you have to think outside the box. You have to keep thinking outside the box. Otherwise, you're just going to find yourself back in the box again. Uh, that's why I like what my Peter, my buddy Peter Demandis said. He's like, if you're not trying to Uber yourself, you get Kodak, mm. right? Basically, if you're not trying to disrupt yourself, someone will disrupt you. And Kodak is actually enough a good example of that. That they were the king of film for over 100 years. They own like 70 something percent of the market share. There was like, well, what happened? Right? They were so successful for so long. Mm-hmm. Well, digital cameras came out. Right. And they were slow to adopt. They said the quality's not as good and people are not going to give up film. And by the time they realized their mistake, it was too late. Mm. What a lot of people forget is you know who invented the digital camera? Steve Sassoon, a Kodak engineer, back in 1975. Right. They had the technology 70, or sorry, 20 years before anybody else did. Mm-hmm. Right. But they, they were making so much money. The executives like it would take a lot of capital to develop this technology. And if we do this, this will capitalize our film business, which makes tons of money and there's right. nothing wrong with it. But imagine if they actually had done that, right? Mm. We probably all have Kodak phones today. Yeah, we well might, but they did not. And and I think, you know, that's another thing, uh, uh, another trap, right? Where 
uh, when running a business as well, it's not just all about the numbers. It, like, it's not just about, okay, well, what is making us profit right now, right? And, you know, I think that there are so many people who, for example, um, oh, we don't want to spend X amount of money on this marketing campaign because, like, the product's already good. Surely people are going to want to get it because we've already done all the all the research and everything. Um, and then <laughs> push comes to shove. No one knows what it is, how it works, you know, and it falls apart. So I think it's it's really about, again, like applying that, you know, what if, I guess, mentality, you know, hey, like, what if this doesn't do well? Like, what do we have plans in place for, you know, if something completely different happens? And one of the best indicators of that to me was the pandemic, right? What better way to shake us all out of our boxes <laughs> than for this global, um, I can't, I want to say phenomenon. It doesn't feel quite, you know, uh, mood appropriate, but, you know, this happenstance uh, affected all of us and we were all forced out of our boxes entirely. Um, and I think... In that time, right, you can clearly tell the businesses that have succeeded are the ones who are like, look, okay, we've been rocked by this, but now that means we need to figure out where we have, like, gone wrong, where our weak spots were and how we can rebuild and change as a result, right? I mean, you can see that, for example, in um, the companies that have adopted, for example, hybrid working on a, I guess, more a mainstream level. Right. They're like, well, clearly, whatever nine to five was not working before. <laughs> if we were all thrown into such chaos at that point. Right. We got to figure out something different. Uh, and that's I, you know, that's an extreme example. Adapt or die. <laughs> yeah, right? pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. But that, that's the thing. If you have that tenacity, that fire to say, OK, I got to figure something out. You probably will. Mm-hmm. Right, and so it's so, so, so unfortunate. A lot of businesses needed that uh, pandemic fire lit to actually find that. Absolutely, but I, I find it interesting because, like you know, I see a lot more restaurants like in North America. Now the menu is on a QR code. You can order through your phone, pay through the phone. You know, a lot of people are like, "Man, this is really great." And I'm like, you know, I've been able to do this in China for the last five years. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's just like, like what? Well, why would they ever want to do that? Well, did you find it better than what you traditionally did? Well, mm-hmm. it was actually a lot more convenient. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, uh, f- for us as well, like, uh, uh, for example, paying with your phone was something that I think was not very heavily adopted uh, around these parts for a while, just because people were, especially in, in Malaysia, like people are used to cash. You know, you go to like a street vendor and you're like, well, it would be wild to pay with a phone to a street vendor. They're a street vendor. And then the pandemic hit and everyone was like, we don't want to touch <laughs> anything, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, so we're, we've been forced to adapt. Now we've got QR codes and all these e-wallets available to us. Um, and, and for sure. And I think that's uh, actually moving on from that. In a funny way, um, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, that also has a lot to do with how artificial intelligence works, right? The whole point of it is, you know, with like machine learning, for example, you find this pattern and then you have to figure out like, okay, what to do with this pattern then? And then how do I, I mean, that's the whole point of like making sure that we train AI properly, right? Is to make sure that it doesn't fall into these unconscious biases based on the patterns that it finds and and all that jazz. So at that point, uh, at this point, I want to kind of get into that a little tiny bit before we (laughs) wrap up our conversation. Um, You actually published a book. Uh, and it's called uh, Own the AI Revolution. And it shares, uh, first of all, insight on how to be disruptive, which we sort of talked about 
for uh, the crux of this conversation as well. Uh, but also it utilizes and talks about um, implementing a powerful AI strategy as well. So tell me a little bit about this relationship between disruptive thinking and artificial intelligence. AI is the ultimate disruptor right now. You know, it's we call it the third generation of computing because it works completely different than what we're used to. Mm-hmm. And so it has a whole new set of capabilities and we're finding out that because of these new capabilities or these new tools, we can actually do things a lot differently. So consider you want to hire a person, right? Mm-hmm. And we go through our normal process, submit the resume, keyword search, HR screen, right? You know, all these things to qualif- qualify the candidate and then the hiring manager will try and say, well, this person fit into my team at the corporate culture, right? And we're good at the qualifications. We suck at is there the fit. What AI has actually enabled us to do now is as people apply, AI can actually assess the fit of the person hmm. to the team and the culture. So we've actually inverted the way we recruit people now. As people come in, they're first being screened to see how well they would fit in. And then you get a much smaller list of people and say, okay, now who of these are actually qualified? And now I can go actually interview with more confidence. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's another that's another disruptive way of thinking as well, where we used to be so skills based, like we have to have the right people with the right qualifications or degree or training or whatever. And now it's like, well, actually, no, it's more about finding the people that work well within the work culture that we have or the people that are more suited to uh, the kind of work style that we have here. Uh, well, who are the people that we're going to want to see on a day-to-day basis and communicate <laughs> with that we'll enjoy spending time with because that matters. Um, you know, and then later on, honestly, like skills can be taught, right? You know, so like that, even that way of hiring has completely shifted uh, over, over the years as well. And I think that it's really interesting and I look forward to seeing what other innovations that AI can give us, and also hopefully what new innovations that people who've heard this and applied the disruptive thinking framework, Tuckbo 2, uh, will come up with. I'm so excited. Uh, but that brings us to the end of our chat. So thank you very much, Neil, for speaking to me today all about disruptive thinking and Tuckbo and AI. My pleasure, Christine. I hope this was useful for everybody. Yes, uh, I really hope so too. And uh, (laughs) this has been Raise Your Game. And if you've missed any of today's show, uh, you can go ahead and download the app. Uh, So our app is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And you can also head over to our website to bfm.my to listen to and download the podcast if you've missed any of this interview. I'm Christine Wong and you're listening to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.